Hello and welcome to the 2019 Hoover Institution Palm Beach Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is H.R. McMaster, the Fouad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Battlegrounds, Competitions That Will Determine American Security, Prosperity, and Influence in a New Era. It was recorded on March 20th, 2019. Thanks to all of you. It's great to be back in Palm Beach. I used to spend a little bit more time down here, as you might know, <laughs> just down the road. And, um, and I'm really, really looking forward to talking with you a little bit about what we're doing at Hoover in the area of national security and foreign policy. And, and to, to do that by really just talking about the framework that we've established that I think is going to make tremendous contributions to advancing and protecting our, our American interests, our way of life, and advancing American prosperity and, and influence uh, in, in the world. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. I wanted to share a little bit about that with you and then see where you'd like to take the conversation. But you know, the first time I came to Palm Beach was with the president, and I had been on that Friday before President's Day in 2017, been walking in my hometown of, of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, when my phone rang with the 202 area code. I almost didn't answer it. I was on my way to give a briefing on what we were calling Russian new generation warfare. And this is Russia's real, new, this new form of warfare that is essentially a, a form of sustained political subversion against the United States and, and, and the West. And on the other end of the phone was the Deputy Chief of Staff of the White House, and she said, hey, can you come to, to uh, Mar-a-Lago tomorrow? And I said, sure, you know, I, I think I can. I think I can do that. I'll check flights and everything else. It wound up being on that Sunday. And so I flew in, went right to, the, to a series of interviews uh, at Mar-a-Lago, uh, which ended with an interview with the president. And I think, he, I think he offered me the job during the interview, but I wasn't quite sure. And I was the first one, though. So everybody around was like, hey, don't. You know, and you may have noticed he's a little bit impulsive, you know. But he, but, uh, but uh, I, I, he said, can you stick around? Uh, can you stick around and, and wait until, uh, until the evening? And then I think they were going to cycle me back in after he interviewed Ambassador Bolton uh, and uh, General Caslin and, and General Kellogg. So uh, I waited. And, you know, I hadn't eaten anything. I'd flown from, you know, from Newport News, Virginia. And I was starving. And they had me holed up in kind of the military aides uh, quarters there. And one of them had brought in a five-pound bag of pistachios. I, I ate the entire thing. I ate the whole thing. I didn't even know whose they were, you know. And, uh, and of course, I, I talked to my wife and so forth. And, and, um, and so but he, he was available. And went to, the president went to a, to a dinner. So I went back the next morning, you know, uh, ran into Ambassador Bolton awkwardly in the men's room. I think they're trying to keep us all separate. I was staying, we were all staying at different hotels. Um, and then, and then he, uh, the president gave me the job and said, you know, hey, start, start uh, right away. I flew back with him and then started, uh, went back to my house, packed a bag, and started in the White House the next day. And I was living in Tidewater, Virginia. So not a lot of time to prepare for the job. But I had been thinking about, you know, what had happened uh, to, to American interests and America's place in the world since the end of the Cold War. And I believed strongly as I went into the job that the balance had really shifted against us, against the United States, but against the free and open societies of the world. And that balance had shifted against us for a number of reasons, but at a broad level of generality, shifted against us because we were complacent, overconfident, 
in the post-Cold War period with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the overwhelming uh, tactical victory over Saddam Hussein's army, the sixth largest army in the world in Desert Storm, a period of sustained economic growth in the 1990s, the first big, the first big tech boom in Silicon Valley. And so if you remember, a lot, of the, a lot of the experts at the time were talking about a unipolar world. They were talking about an arc of history that had guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies and free market capitalism over authoritarian, closed, status systems. And then, of course, that over-optimism, I think, led to some of the difficulties we had after the turn of the century. We had underestimated the ability of enemies to fight us asymmetrically, right? I mean, my friend Comrade Crane says, there are two ways to fight the United States, asymmetrically and stupid, right? So now you hope, you hope that your enemy picks stupid, but they're unlikely to do so. And this is how we get the mass murder attacks of September 11, 2001, an asymmetric uh, attack uh, against, uh, against our, our nation. And so then there were a series of kind of strategic shocks in the early 2000s. We have 9-11. We, we have then the unanticipated length and difficulties of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, I often think we, we debate the wrong question about Iraq. We always debate, should we have done it? What we ought to debate is, who the heck thought it was going to be easy? And why did they think it was going to be easy? And then, of course, the 2008 financial crisis. And I think, I think that pendulum swung from over-optimism about the degree of agency and control we have over complex challenges in the world to pessimism and, I would say, defeatism under the Obama administration. And so when I came into the job in my second trip down to Mar-a-Lago, I took all of the strategic documents I could get my hands on because I wanted to read what were the policies, what were the strategies of the previous administration to cope with complex challenges in really four key categories. The return of great power competition with revisionist powers on the Eurasian landmass, Russia and China. Russia, who I mentioned, is waging this sustained campaign of political subversion against us. China, which is using a form of economic aggression and subversion in the form of sustained industrial espionage, as well as using mercantilist policies and unfair trade and economic practice to enrich itself in a way that allows it to have an unprecedented military buildup, and then also to extend its military power in a way that is aimed at excluding the United States from key spheres of influence across the Indo-Pacific region. What, what were the policies and strategies around the transnational threats, which weren't going away? In fact, they were getting worse. We see it getting worse today even, because if you think about what what caused or who were the people behind that mass murder attack against our nation on September 11, 2001, they were the so-called Afghan alumni. They were the these, these were terrorists who grew up in the Mujahideen organizations associated with resisting the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s. They were those who were then party to the civil war in Afghanistan from 92 to 96. Now, now we have an Al-Qaeda in Iraq alumni. We have an ISIS alumni. We have a problem that is orders of magnitude greater than it was at the turn of the century. And what we have is a phenomenon that we might call the democratization of destruction. When these groups who adhere to this, this irreligious, you know, perverted interpretation 
of Islam have access to, to weapons that were previously associated only with those of nation states. Sophisticated biological weapons is what they're trying to, to develop. It's chemical weapons, but I think atomic, certainly dirty bomb capabilities, and maybe even the most destructive, the destructive uh, tools on Earth. And of course, cyberspace makes us vulnerable in new ways as well. So I was concerned about geostrategic competition, great power rivalry coming back, transnational terrorist organizations, and also concerned about hostile states. North Korea, in particular, developing a nuclear and missile program. Very difficult, I thought, you know, and we all thought, to overstate that threat. Not just because of, of the direct threat to the United States and other nations by nuclear-capable missiles from North Korea, but also recognizing the effect that a nuclear North Korea would have on the whole non-proliferation regime. How, how quickly do we think Japan would get a nuclear weapon? I think pretty quickly. And then if Japan gets a nuclear weapon, South Korea is going to get a nuclear weapon. And then, you know, and then of course, if Kim Jong-un has them, like, who doesn't, really? And then you have the, you have the problem of, uh, of the North Korean regime, which, which, which really has never met a weapon that it didn't want to sell to somebody. It hasn't sold to somebody. It, in fact, was developing a nuclear capability for Assad until the Israeli Air Force destroyed that facility. And so you also have the problem of Iran and, and, uh, and, and, the, and the, the, the problem associated with Iran waging a proxy war against us in Israel since 1979. So what were our strategies for great power competition, transnational terrorist organizations, for hostile states? And then the fourth category that I was concerned about were really competitions, new arenas of competition from which we were largely absent. These are forms of economic aggression, but these are also what Herb Lynn talked to you about, which are really sustained campaigns of cyber-enabled information warfare. And he's one of the, cl the clearest thinker about this that, that I know. So I'm sure you got a lot out of his presentation this morning. So new arenas of competition and then disruptive technologies. Disruptive technologies that have a very big implication for national security and national defense. So I brought all of this work down and I was astonished that we didn't really have any clearly described policies, that we didn't have any, any, any really sound strategies, that we hadn't even framed these problems in a way. We hadn't framed these problems in a way that sought to understand what the nature of the problem or the challenge is, and then to view it through the lens of our vital interests and craft goals and objectives and think about how to combine the tremendous potential we have, the elements of our national power, the efforts of like-minded countries, to shift that balance back in our favor, to improve our security and our prosperity and extend our influence. And so we endeavored for the year that I was there, 13 months I was there, was to restore our strategic competence as a nation, to think, to think clearly and in a new way about these problems, to challenge these implicit, really, assumptions that had underpinned our policies. Remember, great power competition, that was a thing of the past. Remember when Russia invaded Ukraine? What did Secretary Kerry say? That was so 19th century. Well, actually, hey, it's the 21st century, Mr. Secretary, and it happened. And Russia actually, since 2007, is becoming more and more aggressive with denial of service attacks against Estonia, the invasion of Georgia in 2008. I could just go on and on. 
And we were, we were asleep to that. We weren't competing effectively with Russia. And of course, China, China, the assumption that underpinned our, our approach toward China had been, China, having been welcomed into international trade and, uh, and business protocols, uh, and, and welcomed to the international order, a member of the WTO, China would liberalize its economic policies. It would move from a statist economy toward a free market economy. And then, as it gained wealth, it would liberalize its form of governance. How's that working out? All right? I mean, the opposite is what is happening. Our approach to transnational terrorist organizations had never been based, had not been based on the need to consolidate military gains against those terrorist organizations to get the sustainable political outcomes that address the drivers of those conflicts. What we have today in, across the greater Middle East in the, with this humanitarian and political catastrophe is essentially a sectarian civil war that is being fomented by these takfirist or Salafi jihadist, uh, these, these uh, Islamist organizations associated with Salafism and then you also have the, the Iranians who are using proxy forces and they're interacting and creating this cycle of sectarian violence. What were we doing politically? Well, we decided from the very beginning, you know, both in Afghanistan and Iraq, we weren't going to stay there that long. But what that did is it guaranteed that we would have to stay, stay there longer. We hadn't thought through what it took to consolidate gains. And then it reached an absurd level uh, under the Obama administration when in Afghanistan, there's the announcement of a reinforced security effort to reverse the deterioration of that situation there and get to that sustainable outcome, but at the same time, the administration announces, oh, hey, we're leaving, and we want to negotiate at the same. How does, how does that work? It doesn't work. And then in Iraq, when, when Vice President Biden calls President Obama and says, thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war think about the assumption that underpinned that phone call. Wars end when you leave. Well, guess what? They don't, right? And we saw, obviously, this, this horrible catastrophe of the rise of, of ISIS back in, in Iraq, and we could talk more about that if, you, if you'd like. And then on hostile states, think about the assumptions that underpinned, underpinned those strategies and policies, right? That, that you know, North Korea would, would ultimately be okay if we just have strategic patience, Really, strategic patience. And, 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 uh, and then under, under Iran, the Iran strategy was the Iran nuclear deal. Again, the assumption was that Iran, if we welcome them into the international order, they'll liberalize. They'll be like the Grinch. Their hearts will grow two sizes bigger. I mean, and, 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 and what this did is it enriched the Iranian regime and allowed the Iranian regime to apply more and more resources to their sustained campaign, uh, the sustained proxy war against us and against Israel. And so I felt there's a lot of work to do here. I didn't talk about disruptive threats and that sort of thing, but I just wanted to share with you, you know, what, what we would like to do about this uh, at Hoover, and then I'm happy to see where you'd like to take the discussion of, on any of these issues, uh, an assessment of what we're able to achieve uh, in the first year of the Trump administration uh, most of that is contained at a, at a level of generality, an unclass level, in the highly readable page-turner national security strategy published in December of 2017, which I highly recommend. But 
But I'm, I'm, excited, I'm excited to be at Hoover to, to help to have the opportunity to contribute to restoring our strategic competence and to continue to work to try to shift that balance back in favor, not just of the United States, but in the free and open societies of the world. Because I do believe that we're under duress. We're under duress in a way that is reminiscent of what drove Herbert Hoover to found the Hoover, the, the Hoover Institution in 1919. You know, this is, this is the 100th year anniversary. And if you think about what the world had just gone through in World War I, it had gone through a, ca a catastrophe, a cataclysmic event of a world war, a world war that everybody, I mean, if any of those leaders who were engaged in that war knew, had known what the cost would be of that war at the outset, none of them would have done it. This is what my colleague Neil uh, Ferguson writes about in, in his book, The Pity of War. But it was a war in, in, in which... Uh, 20 million people uh, were killed, uh, 9.7 military, 10 million civilians, 21 million people were, were wounded. And what, and what Herbert Hoover wanted to do was to build an institution that could study war and warfare, that could study great power politics and do so in a way to fulfill the mission of the Hoover Institution. And that mission, I think, could have been written today. And what he emphasized was protecting the Constitution of the United States. And this miracle, this great gift uh, of, of the of, of American form of government, based mainly on represent, representative government, and, and on preserving our social and economic system that is based on private enterprise. He said that the Hoover Institution would constantly and dynamically point the road to peace, to personal freedom, and to the safeguards of the American system. I would say all of what Herbert Hoover held dear in this mission statement is at a greater risk than maybe any time in our, in our history. And so, so we're endeavoring to, to do now, Tom Gilligan and I are working with, uh, with, with Denise and, and Josh and our team, is to develop a, a national security program at Hoover that that doesn't really change the research. There's extraordinarily high quality research that is policy relevant that happens already. But to organize the effort around those four, those four key areas that threaten, that threaten everything that we hold dear. That's great power competition, transnational terrorist threats, transnational terrorist organizations, other transnational threats, hostile states, and then, and then finally, um, new arenas of competition and, and disruptive technologies. But also cutting through this program will be, hey, what do we do about that? And of course the first, the, the, the first really priority for us, I think, is to restore our strategic competence as a nation. I believe that we were able to do that in large measure during, during my time uh, in the administration. We can talk more about that experience and what more is left to do there. But also, another theme that will cut across all of these areas of research is how do we restore our strategic confidence? Our confidence in who we are as a people, in our democratic principles, values, our institutions, our processes, as well as our, as well as our free market economy. I would say that has a lot to do, a lot to do with education, uh, and it has a lot to do with our economic strength and our fiscal strength, and I don't think any other 
organization, uh, any other besides Hoover, brings together the, the true expertise uh, across across all those all those fields. And so you heard from Paul, for example, already uh, on education, uh, and Eric and and Mackie, and there's a great team that work that works on that as, as well. So the the emphasis of this program uh, will be to shift the balance back in favor of the United States and free and open societies. Uh, I'd love to talk with you more about the substance associated with each of these challenges to national security and, and hear where you'd like to take the discussion. So thank you and thanks especially for the privilege of being with you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.